Hi, I'm Liana Downey, founder of Common Ground on Climate, and I think we can be having better conversations about Australia's future, conversations that bring us together to protect what we have. On this podcast, we're talking to a wide range of people to understand more about where we are, how we got here, and we're on the hunt for one big idea to safeguard Australia's environmental and economic future that we can all get behind. So join us and let's build common ground on climate together. So we're here today with Alex von Huss, who leads the system design work at the Australian Energy Market Operator, or the AEMO, and we'll be talking a little bit more with Alex about what the AEMO is and does. So Alex, thank you again for joining us. It's lovely to have you here. If you could wave a magic wand and have the kind of country that you wanted, what would it look and feel like? That's a really great question, Liana. Let me just start with, I'm absolutely passionate about the energy sector. So I'll focus my response on what I would love to see happening in the energy sector. And I really hope that Australia will be once again the lucky country. We are incredibly fortunate because we are blessed with probably every conceivable energy resource that exists on this planet, with maybe the exception of oil. And historically, we have made the most of it. And what I would love to see Australia do is, again, make the most of it, maybe coming from the resources of the future instead of the resources of the past. And I would love to see Australia set a really global example of how to manage this transition, which is admittedly a very difficult transition of the energy sector, which profound flow-on consequences on the makeup of our economy. So thank you. So for you, you'd see Australia really as leading in the energy sector, continuing to lead in the energy sector, but having made a transition. That's right. Australia today, when you look across different commodity, is really the number one, two or three exporter of you know, natural gas, for example, or coal. And I think we can again be a global leader in the export of energy but we are just using a different carrier fuel be that hydrogen or ammonia for example and similarly in our domestic market that we have really managed to go through this transition of the energy sector in a way that is manageable for consumers so that they continue to enjoy reliable, secure and in fact affordable energy and industry also can enjoy the benefits of low cost reliable energy. And I think if we're doing it well, I think we are we can achieve all of these objectives. So you can imagine a world in which this is not about pain and suffering as a transition for Australia. It's not about deprivation, but it sounds more like you're thinking about this as a source of economic value for the country. Absolutely. But this will not just happen to us. I think we need to be really proactive about it. We need to think about the future. We need to design the future that we want to see and then work hard at achieving it. And so given that, are there things that you are worried about now when you look at where we stand versus where you imagine we could be? What keeps you awake at night. <laughs> There's probably a lot of things that keep me awake at night, but just to focus my worries, I, I think sometimes we focus too much on the problems instead of the solutions. And sometimes instead of embracing change, 
we are focusing on all of the things that could go wrong. I think we need to adopt a forward-looking, positive and constructive mindset so that we can truly capitalize on the opportunities that present themselves to our nation as we go through that energy transition. Yeah, it makes sense. And I mentioned that you work for the Australian Energy Market Operator. For people who aren't familiar with that as an entity, can you talk to us a little bit about who the Australian Energy Market Operator is and their role? Sure. So the Australian Energy Market Operator, or AEMO for short, is really the entity that is operating the both electricity and gas system, both in the national electricity market, which is really covering the east coast of Australia, as well as the Western Australian electricity market. And we are also operating the gas system. More recently, after the Finkel review, we have also received a really significant role in planning the future of the Australian energy system. And I'm very privileged together with my team to actually have that job of mapping out what is the future pathway for Australia's energy system. And we are doing that through a process that ends up in a publication that's called the Integrated System Plan. So we have already done two of these plans and they really look at different scenarios of how Australia's energy system could evolve and then try to identify what is the least cost and least risk pathway to adapting the energy system under each of these scenarios. And as a result of that, we see changes in the generation mix. We see opportunities for investment in the supporting network infrastructure. And we hope this provides clarity and really a light on the hill for all stakeholders in the energy space to gather together and shape the future of Australia's energy system. And so we'll talk a little bit more about the the trade-offs that you're making and, and that planning. I want to just step even one level higher for people who may not really even have a clear sense of when we talk about an energy market, what that means. And so if you think about the average consumer in their house, way back when you, you had just one energy provider and now you have energy providers to choose from, can you talk about the idea of what an energy market is and a little bit about how the energy market works in Australia at the moment? The energy market in Australia, it's actually a very successful and in fact complicated construct, but maybe just putting it quite simply. And let's start really at the most important part of the market, which is the consumers. And these can be residential consumers, but it can also be industry or commercial buildings. We all want reliable energy whenever we need it and we want it at a good price and the market is really designed to deliver this outcome to the consumers. The way it works is as a sort of residential consumer you probably enter into relatively simple or hopefully simple contracts with what's called your retailer that's really the company that you buy your electricity from but as the retailers and the larger energy consumers they operate in something which is called the wholesale energy market where all of the suppliers of energy and all of the users of energy come together and try to find the most efficient 
price and the most efficient way to supply energy at this particular point in time. And by the way, that is exactly the market that AMO is, is operating, among other things. Now, historically, that supply has come from a few large-scale centralized power stations running predominantly on coal and, and to some extent on gas and with a little bit of hydro thrown in. But that picture is now really rapidly changing as consumers take on much more the task of producing their own energy. So when you put solar panels on your roof, for example, you actually start to become in some way, shape or form a participant in this market and you serve some of your energy needs by yourself. And then for the rest, you rely on the market out there that's supplying energy. And that broader market is also changing at an absolutely phenomenal rate. We are seeing addition of very large-scale wind and solar projects that now also offer supply opportunities into this market. And you've talked about those bigger installations. Probably most people are familiar with, as you said, the solar rooftop panels. We're also, that's moving very quickly, isn't it, in Australia? My understanding is we have one of the highest, if not the highest, rate of uptake of solar panels on roofs. Do you have a sense for what's happening in that space in Australia? Yes, Australia is, in fact, the country that is experiencing the highest uptake of large-scale renewables and, and distributed renewables of any country in the world when you measure it on a per capita basis to have a really fair comparison. And in fact, we are adding renewables at twice the rate compared to the next country on planet Earth who's also changing their system and that country happens to be Germany. So that's a really phenomenal rate of change that we are experiencing. And as a result, Australia also has one of the highest per capita rooftop PV penetrations in the world. And to add to the list of records, and this is, we spoke earlier about what keeps me awake at night, but we are also actually facing some of the most challenging conditions of securely integrating these renewables into the system because Australia is such a large continent and compared to, say, Europe and the US much more thinly populated and that from an electrical point of view just makes it more difficult to integrate these things but I think we have again led the world in the application of these modern technologies and found ways to integrate them securely into the grid. You started earlier talking about the assets that Australia has and you talked about ammonia and hydrogen and we might come back to those later seems probably pretty obvious to most people that we also have a lot of sun in Australia and so that's an asset for solar which is probably part of the reason I would imagine that so many consumers are putting rooftop installation in as well as other kind of bigger installations but if I'm hearing you correctly what you're saying is that it's not enough for consumers to act on their own that what is really required in a country as big and spread out as Australia is the planning and the kind of planning work that you're doing because rapid change can bring with it its own challenges if that change hasn't been 
prepared for or planned. Is that a fair replay of what you're saying? Absolutely. We really think the transition is manageable, but the transition is probably only manageable if we think about it carefully in the right way, really plan for it. Because these new technologies that we have just spoken about, you know, be it rooftop solar or a large-scale solar farm, or for that matter, a large-scale wind farm, and Australia is actually blessed with really phenomenal solar resources and very good wind resources as well. These new technologies now need to keep the grid stable. So, for instance, last year, that was 2020, and I think from memory on the 11th of, of, of October, we had in South Australia for a half hour period the whole state running off solar. 80% of that was rooftop PV and the rest was large-scale plants. Now, that really puts a very important requirement on those distributed systems and those large-scale farms to provide all of the different services, all of the reliability, all of the security that is required to basically keep a whole state operating just as it always has been operating. And you can only achieve that if you really carefully think through how you're going to connect these renewables, what sort of backup mechanisms, for instance, storage you have to deal with the periods of time when the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing, and also to provide some probably more technical services that are required to keep this whole system stable. When you think about the electricity system, it's, it's probably one of the biggest machines that we have built. It's an interconnected machine of the size of a continent, which is fairly complicated, and you need to make sure that this machine really stably runs at 50 hertz and make sure that every consumer gets energy if and when they require it. You've talked about it at the continental level. It's all of Australia. Is it true that it's not enough for states to act on their own, but this really requires that federal level cooperation and coordination? I think that's right. I think many states have recognised the opportunity that arises from a transition to a more renewable energy system, and they are taking action for their state to capture that opportunity. And that's part of the reason why they, for instance, introduced targets for the deployment of renewable energy. But given that it is an interconnected system, it is also important to have a overlay on it to ensure that the system as a whole is working and that's also one of the roles that we are playing. So it sounds like there are two tensions here. One is the need to move quickly in order to make sure that we are reducing greenhouse gas emissions nationally, internationally, but at the same time there's a need to make sure that's not happening without the planning and coordination at the federal level at the same time. Is that fair? Oh, that's 100%. And I think there's really two drivers for the transition of the energy system. One you have just referred to, which is obviously our desire to maintain a sustainable planet and energy can play a really important role in achieving that goal. But there's also another driver, and that driver is pure economics. When you look at what is driving the change in the Australian energy system, it's economics at the moment. Because there's really two drivers here. One is we have a fleet of existing power stations 
that have been built roughly 40, 50 years ago. And things that have been built that long ago, they basically reach the end of their life. So they are quite naturally shutting down. And the question for us is, what is the lowest cost way to replace the energy that these power stations are providing? And the answer is, through the rapid advance of technology, it is renewables firmed up with batteries, with pumped hydro or with gas that provides the lowest cost form of energy. So if you're doing a purely economic, rational calculation, you actually see the Australian energy sector almost completely decarbonizing by the year 2050. I think that is a really fascinating and important point and one that doesn't feel reflected necessarily in the conversations that people might be hearing on the radio or hearing politicians talking about. What, what I hear people talking about is anxiety about exiting coal because it will destroy the Australian economy. That's something that I'm sure some people have heard talked about. But what you're talking about is that the cost of renewables has gone down so dramatically and so fast that argument no longer holds. That is right. There can be local impacts, and I think it's actually quite important to understand and mitigate those local impacts. Take, for example, if you are working in a coal mine in the Hunter Valley or in the Latrobe Valley and working in one of the associated power stations, it is pretty confronting when you have a finite life on your job in that area. But I think the important thing to realise here is there are other jobs created at the same time for these new technologies that are from an energy consumer point of view and over the whole life of the asset in fact cheaper and are if planned well which is coming back to our previous theme just as able to provide secure and reliable power and that's why we are seeing a transition and that's why to ensure that transition happens properly is we need to plan it well. And certainly that discussion seems to be very much what's coming from the Biden administration is the tying together of investment in renewables and job creation as an economic opportunity for the US. Are we seeing similar sorts of discussions here about if Australia went even harder into solar, for example, not so much at the individual level, but more at the concentrated solar plant type operations, so the bigger, more industrial investments. Has there been really good discussion about the economic opportunities there in terms of job creation that you're aware of? Who's having those discussions in Australia? I, I think Australia has started to realise that there is potentially a very significant economic opportunity for the country if we're getting this right and it strikes me as being actually of bipartisan support also in Australia and I think the person who should be credited at least in part with achieving that bipartisan support is Alan Finkel. I think he has really highlighted the potential role that hydrogen can play in Australia's economy and given that Australia has some of the you know, best solar and wind resources in the world, I think in a new low-carbon energy context, 
we could be a country that continues to benefit from its resources and makes them available to some of our neighboring countries who are less fortunate in terms of resource access. That's really interesting. You've talked now a couple of times about hydrogen and I'd like to just explore a little bit more. There's a lot of technology development that is going on right now around hydrogen and ways to use hydrogen. Can you give us kind of the basic overview of hydrogen? Obviously, that would be a theme for a podcast in itself. But in essence, the idea behind hydrogen, and in particular what's called green hydrogen, is that you take power produced by renewable plants and you use a machine that's called an electrolyzer and use that to turn water effectively in hydrogen. And hydrogen then itself is an energy carrier. You can convert it further into ammonia, which is you know a gas that's maybe easier to handle. And then you can take that gas or if it's compressed ammonia, for instance, in liquid form, you can put that on a ship or put it through a pipeline and you can ship it as stored energy anywhere on the world. And when you look at what makes a country globally competitive in producing hydrogen, it's really all coming down to who has the best resources available to produce renewable power the cheapest because once you have the renewable power you buy a more or less off-the-shelf technology in form of those electrolyzers and transport it away so this is in essence the opportunity for australia so big changes potentially ahead very big changes Um, yes how much work remains for that to be really viable in Australia? How much technological investment and development will be required to really get things up and running in Australia to to set us up so that we can export? Realistically, there is still a lot of investment required to make our hydrogen economy a reality. But we are starting to make those investments, and I think that's a good thing. That's investment in the underlying technology of, for example, those electrolyzers and bringing down their cost. By the way, I don't think that's really a core opportunity for Australia because most of those technologies are basically just boxes that come from overseas. But it is understanding where the the best resources, what are the right business model, how to finance it, how to use it also in our domestic system, how to manage safety. So there is a lot of work that is required. And frankly, there's also still a lot of cost reduction that needs to happen in particular on the sort of electrolyzer front, but also further on renewables so that hydrogen can really compete on its own with natural gas. But when you look back at the history of, say, renewable power, be it solar or wind, It's been absolutely phenomenal how those technologies have reduced in cost from back in the 1970s being a niche application that you could only afford on really a spacecraft to something that you can buy in everyday appliances and that you might put on your roof to, you know, have cost-effective power supply at home. So I think with the right focus... As a global community, we will be able to unlock that opportunity of hydrogen. And I think Australia is very well positioned to capitalise on that opportunity. 
Yeah, I think it tells you something when you can buy solar panels at IKEA. That uh, <laughs> <laughs> that is the ultimate test, yes, of <laughs> making it available to everyone. That's right. Yeah, a very big difference. So you touched a little bit on gas, and there's a lot of talk about gas in Australia at the moment. What's the difference between coal and gas from an economic and an environmental perspective? And then I'm also interested in what's the difference between gas and other renewables like solar and wind, again, from an economic and an environmental perspective? Let's start maybe with the difference between coal and gas in the electricity sector. And by the way, just as an aside, because it gets forgotten too often, when we talk coal, and in particular coal exports from Australia, it's important to recognize that most of the coal, at least in value terms that we're exporting, is not used for electricity production, but for steel production. And and I suspect that as long as we keep using steel, that may very well continue for some time, but there are also technologies that can reduce that. But let's come back to coal and gas in the electricity sector. So in really rough terms, when you burn um, coal and you burn the same energy equivalent of gas, um, coal emits about twice as much, or if it's really poor quality coal, even more than that, in greenhouse gas emissions. There is still a lot of debate about what are the indirect emissions associated with that. That's called the fugitive emissions. So in essence, gas is handled well and managed well is probably half the emissions intensity of coal. The second difference is really the type of plants that convert the raw energy into electricity. And gas plants are actually, generally speaking, much more flexible in terms of their ability to vary their output. Now that is becoming increasingly important in the energy system going forward because as a result of those weather-dependent renewables, we see many more fluctuations in output of those renewable plants and therefore we need what we call the dispatchable generators that can really produce output on command. We need them to be quite flexible as well and that's an area where gas wins as well. As a result, gas has often been referred to as a transition fuel for this energy transition. But transition also means it's probably not going to end with conventional natural gas. It's probably going into other dispatchable technologies. One really important technology that, again, had an, a really stellar performance in the last couple of years are actually batteries. Similar to wind and solar, they are coming down very rapidly in price and the scale of the installations is growing exponentially as well and they are really flexible they are really fast in their response and they are being used now also by us as the market operator to really stabilize the whole energy system in a very effective and dare I say cost effective way as well. There are other technologies such as pumped hydro. Again, Australia has decided to significantly expand one of its major, or actually several of its major existing pumped hydro schemes, be it Snowy Hydro in the Snowy Mountains or what's now called the Battery of the Nation, um, which is based in Tasmania, plus a number of other smaller schemes. So as you can hear, there is really no shortage of opportunities and different technologies that 
can contribute to Australia's future energy mix. That's fascinating. And when you talk about those really big batteries, what are we talking, either in terms of the physical size of the batteries or how many households worth of power they can hold? Yeah, so probably the one battery that most people are familiar with is the sort of the Tesla battery in quotes that Elon Musk tweeted about and then delivered within 100 days in South Australia. So that battery was about 100 megawatts in capacity. And depending on which time of day you're talking about, but that could be something like providing power for 100,000 households, admittedly for maybe one or two hours. And as I said before, the, the rate of growth of these batteries is really staggering in the way they get deployed. So last year in Victoria, we have actually procured an even bigger battery, which is aptly named the Victorian Big Battery. Now that is now already three times as large as that original battery that was tweeted about by Elon Musk. And we were actually, this is quite a funny story, we thought when we were running this procurement process, we thought we were procuring the world's biggest battery. And we were very excited about that. And then guess what? It was about a week before we announced the outcome of our tender process that we were informed that there was just another battery in the US um, announced that was even bigger. So it's actually, it's such a rapidly evolving field. But while we were disappointed, I think overall, it is quite exciting to see how quickly the market changes. And I don't think it will be long until we see batteries of the scale that are probably bigger than the size of a unit in a coal-fired power station. So just maybe to give you that comparison, so a typical coal-fired power station unit is 500, 600 megawatts. So that's about half the size of a unit of a coal-fired power station. That gives you a feel for the incredible scale of these machines nowadays. Yeah, that's really interesting. And one of the things that I've heard some people express concern about when we do talk about a transition through gas is that even to transition to gas and then to something else, you do have to establish a whole set of infrastructure to make that work. And there's a question of if are you investing in infrastructure that is not the infrastructure that you want for the long haul. What are the risks associated with that? Is that part of the discussion that you've been engaged with and you're thinking about with planning? Because you were talking about the questions of efficiency. So how do we get where we need to be as kind of quickly and as effectively as possible with least risk, the sorts of things you're thinking about as you're planning? It's a really hard question and I can put that on the long list of things that keep me up late at night. Because we do have to invest into long-term infrastructure assets. This can be power stations, this can be transmission lines, it can be gas pipelines. And so you have to make a decision today on an asset that will be around for the next 20, 30, 40 years. So you need to be pretty sure that this asset will be used throughout its life because otherwise it is an inefficient investment. And that is one of the really difficult questions that we're trying to tackle in this integrated system plan that we're creating. 
And we're doing this by looking at all the different conceivable scenarios and testing what are the decision points, what are, what do you need to believe for this investment to hold up. And, and that's ultimately where, in, in our case, then the recommendation for an investment comes from. But what gives me really confidence that in the end, I don't think that risk of what's technically called a stranded asset is that big because when you look at the fundamental underlying economic drivers, they all point to an energy system that will be fundamentally decarbonized. And in particular, when it comes to electricity, we actually expect that a greater share of our total energy consumption will be provided by electricity because other applications like fuel used for heating or fuel used to power industrial processes may be more cheaply replaced by electricity. So there's actually growth potential on the electricity side. So maybe we are doing an investment a couple of years too early, but eventually I'm very confident that those investments will play out. And in this game, it's, I think, much better to be a little bit early than a little bit late because the consequences when you make investments too late means that you have shortages. And when you have shortages, it's really devastating for the economy. That's the periods when you really get massive price fly-ups, etc. And just to give you an example, for instance, when, say, the Hazelwood Power Station closed in Victoria or the Northern Power Station closed in South Australia because we didn't properly plan for those closures, I think that's the reason why we saw price fly-ups, not because we have replaced a coal-fired power station with maybe a more renewable energy mix. You, you reminded me about the situation that happened in Texas recently, and there was a lot of media noise and heat generated by that, and some commentators laying fault at the feet of renewable assets. But it seemed to me that the most credible information was really pointing to that lack of planning and that they're a highly deregulated industry that didn't necessarily have plans as to how to get energy from their neighbours and also that they'd really run up in isolation just at the state level. Is that something that you guys have looked at and talked about what happened in Texas with lessons to learn for the Australian market? Yeah, we absolutely looked at Texas. In fact, we, whenever an issue happens, large or small, we actually look very carefully at that because you can learn so much from something that goes wrong, really with the intent of avoiding those issues going forward. And like with many big crises, there's never one single fact. It's generally a number of different things going wrong simultaneously. But we firmly believe by understanding what those factors are in dealing with them and planning for them, that's the way to mitigate this. It's a bit like when you make a big decision in your life, say a financial decision in your life, buying a house or buying a car, you're not getting up one morning and say, I'm just going to buy a house or I'm just going to buy a car. But you actually generally sit down and really think carefully about it. Think about it, what you need, which of the options on offer are best serving what you need, and then you make an informed decision. And I think we just need to take the same approach for energy as well. Thinking now about COVID, thinking about an area where there's planning that's going on, 
in, in Australia, there's always people who are thinking about the possibility of any pandemic coming. They're looking to learn things from SARS and Ebola and other previous pandemics, but there's also a point at which urgency hits and then action is required and you're learning things on the fly and continuing to look at what's happening in other jurisdictions and, and take lessons from there. But I'm also interested in the challenges. I think we've both seen the benefits and some of the challenges of being in a federated system where we have a lot that's happening at the state level and then we have a federal government that's coordinating across that as well. We've seen some really interesting examples of state-to-state -state coordination with COVID, but we've probably also seen some of the most public differences in the way different states have responded. How is energy managed and organised between the state and the federal government? The way energy is organised in Australia, it's a complex system because of the federated structure of Australia. So you have bodies like AEMO and some of the other market bodies providing a national framework, but the real power sits with each of the individual states and each individual state has their own jurisdictional planner and now increasingly differentiated jurisdictional targets. I think we as a nation again need to come together and recognize that we are living in a federated world and we need in the interest of consumers need to find the pathway that ultimately solves for the benefit of all Australians. And I think over the history of our country for over a hundred years now, I think we have done that actually relatively successfully. So I don't see a reason why we shouldn't be able to do this now. And in fact, I think the shift that we have seen in probably the last few years is that the states have taken much more control of the energy debate and I think that's injected some really fresh thinking into this debate and probably responded to the real urgency that we're having in this sector to find a solution that is well thought through so it meets the interests really of all Australians. I think that's such an interesting point because I think one of the really interesting dynamics in Australia and in fact in some other parts of the world, I think you certainly see this in the US as well, when people think about climate change or energy more broadly, the first thing that comes to mind is that it does require coordinated action and yet really interestingly often where you're seeing the most action is at the local level. But what you said then I thought was really important which is that by the states getting very involved, they can actually progress the debate forward as well as inject innovation. And I think that's a really important thing for us to think about almost at the citizen level, which is that while we need national coordination, and we've talked a lot about planning, but of course there's also the action on that planning. So you can have you know, beautiful plans, but at the end of the day, we actually need federal governments and state governments to be taking action on that that the involvement of smaller entities, you've talked about the state government, but I also see that kind of at the city council level working up to the state level and from individuals and organisations, that, that this doesn't just have to be, even though it requires yet national and international action, the more people can get involved in the debate and the discussion, 
and bring their ideas and energy, the better the solutions will be. And in fact, the more likely we are to drive that national and international action as well. I 100% agree that this becomes a much more local issue. I agree, it's states, it's cities, but in fact it's individuals as well because we have 20 to 30% of Australian households are now energy generators. So they should actually participate in the debate because they have a double stake now in the debate, not only as consumers, but actually as active producers. Yeah, that's a fascinating shift, isn't it? It's a bit like the shift we went through as we deregulated big state-owned assets and we started to have mum and dad shareholders in companies having much more of an interest in telecommunications companies, energy companies. and But now, as you said, people... Are, and it's, I, I don't know that everybody thinks about it like that. I don't know that I've thought about it like that. And we now have solar rooftop PV, so that's really an interesting way of thinking about it, that there's... It's a good thing to do. You're part of the system now. And so, therefore, you should be contributing to that debate and helping shape the future of of energy in Australia. So, if there was one big idea that would make sense to get behind to safeguard Australia's economic and environmental future, is there one thing you'd be suggesting, you'd be nominating for that one big idea? Unfortunately, I don't think there is one silver bullet. But I think for me it's more the how do we go about solving this problem and I think the most important thing is let's actually see this as an opportunity let's not be afraid of change let's embrace the change and let's ask ourselves the question how can we use this change in a way to really create a better future and get better outcomes and the way to answer this question is through having a really fact-based debate let's not stick with maybe outdated ideologies that we might have. But actually, let's look at what's happening and let's shape our future. I think that is, for me, the single most important thing. Let's take our future in our own hands and let's create the future that we want to see for Australia. That's a lovely way to think about it. And I think it's interesting listening to you talk about the modelling that you're doing and you need to do to make these plans and the fact that things are changing quickly. And so it's not just about outdated ideology necessarily, it's also about outdated information, I think. Oh, yes. Um, As you said, when renewables are going down so quickly, that's for some people that's a new information. I I think that's right. And it's even hard for us who are really living and breathing this on a day-to-day basis. But if I'm honest with you, we have been caught out as well, for example, by the speed of uptake of distributed energy systems and we constantly need to correct our projections upwards because people just love this stuff this is just one of many examples of what you've just highlighted information changes so quickly so it requires agility and openness from us to accept the new facts and turn them into our advantage Uh, i love that i think that idea of agility and openness and not being afraid of change and seeing real opportunities on the other side of these changes for Australia's economic and environmental future. Thank you, Alex. It's been so fantastic to talk to you today. Thank you, Liana. Thanks for helping us build common ground on climate. If you have a big idea for how to safeguard Australia's environmental and economic future, 
know someone we should talk to, or want to join a respectful and pragmatic conversation about our future, please check out our website, commonground.climate.com.au.